Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Hallelujah. We still got three more weeks of Easter to go, so we're going to keep shouting that. And in fact, every Sunday is a little miniature Easter, right? It's why we gather on Sunday morning instead of Saturday, right? It's the Lord's day. It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why the church gathers on such a day as this one. Now, you, speaking of church, people ever ask you about church? People that don't come? They ever ask you about your church specifically? Like questions like, what is the service like? Or what time is it? Or here's the big one. How big is your church? Have you ever had that before? Now, that can be such a loaded question. Because in a lot of places, how big is your church, especially between pastors, is kind of, you know, tooting their own horn a little bit. Right. Oh, my church does blah, 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 blah. Sometimes people, when they ask how big your church is, what they're actually wondering is, how many seats are there? How many people are there? How many parking spaces? In other words, is there a place for me? It's hard to answer that question. How do we gauge it? Sometimes it's an innocent question. Sometimes it's not. But I'll ask you then this morning, how big is your church? From what John saw in our reading from Revelation 7, it's pretty big. Huge, even. How do you answer that? John says it's no one can number. It's no one can count that high. It is an innumerable multitude. That is your church. It always has been. In the Revelation of St. John, we see a church, the church, and they're gathered for worship. All of our bickering and our fighting about tactics and methods and church growth and this and that, it's rendered ridiculous in sight of this vision of this great multitude gathered around the throne of God and before the Lamb. This is a glimpse of the church triumphant. Those who have won the victory through the blood of Christ. They're gathered around the throne, around the Lamb. Saints gathered from every possible group of people on earth. It's a rainbow, although it is not a rainbow of gathered light, but of gathered guests of every variety. And this crowd gathered around the throne is in dazzling light. They're decked out in clothing like Jesus was at the Transfiguration. Their clothes are whiter than bleached white. They are washed with the blood of the Lamb, and they are dazzling white like lightning. And they're carrying palm branches. You know that the two places where palm branches come up in the New Testament, both of them are written by John. One of them is here in Revelation 7, verse 9, and the other is John chapter 12, verse 13. It's the only time palm branches are mentioned, and John is connecting these two things for a reason. You see, historically, palm branches were used in victory celebrations. They're all over the Old Testament. And in the intertestamental period between the two testaments, palm branches mean victory. And that's precisely what we are celebrating here in this vision John sees. Gathered around the throne and around the land. It's a much bigger crowd this time than Palm Sunday. This is everyone who has ever received the victory of Jesus over death. White as lightning and celebrating his victory. 
Now St. Luke Wrighton writes that John now views the result of Christ's triumphal victory on earth, a host waving palm branches in heaven. And we're singing this song. It's the most amazing song ever sung. It's a hymn of praise that has no end. And if the words sound familiar to you, it's because we also use them in parts of our liturgy. And this is the feast of victory for our God drawn right out of this text. It's so powerful. In this vision that John sees, we're all singing. Salvation is with our God who sits on the throne and with the Lamb. That pretty much says it all. And since we talked about palms already, do you know that Lamb of God is also something that only occurs in John's writings? You would, you did know that if you were in Bible class this morning, because I spoiled it. But it's a powerful image, the Lamb of God. It carries so much weight and meaning in the biblical text. Abraham assures his son Isaac, don't worry, God will himself provide the sacrifice. And then there's a ram, a male sheep, caught in the thicket. And who would have known that the sacrificial lamb would be the Lord himself? Isaiah also speaks of the Messiah in his suffering like that of a sheep before its shearers being silent. So he opened not his mouth, Isaiah says. And Jesus didn't answer a mumbling word to anyone at his trial. He did not defend himself at all. Now, tradition holds that each year the chief priests would go out from Jerusalem to David's ancestral city, Bethlehem, to select from the flocks of sheep there that lamb for the Passover. The lamb would then be brought into Jerusalem on the first day of the coming Passover week, Sunday in other words, and it would be subjected to scrutiny over the course of the week and examined until it was found faultless by the priests. The chief priests and the scribes that one particular Passover week in Jerusalem, instead of being welcomed back with the lamb they'd selected from Bethlehem, they'd been upstaged by the one that God selected from Bethlehem. They were upstaged by the Lamb of God who was riding into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna, save us now, and waving palm branches celebrating his victory. And so, of course, even though they didn't pick him, they still scrutinized him, examined him, grilled him all week long, hoping to trap him into saying something that they could use to accuse him of blasphemy. And after his trial in a kangaroo court, it is Pilate, not the high priest, who would declare, I find no fault in him. And the Lamb of God, Jesus, was sacrificed. So here we are in Revelation. Once again, the assembled crowds are waving palm branches. Not in anticipation of the victory as they had on Palm Sunday, but in celebration of the victory that he won that Friday night. You are there in John's vision. John sees you and me and everyone who has ever believed in this name of Jesus. Everyone who has been washed by the blood of the Lamb is standing there in John's view. And there's so many, no one has any hope of counting them, he says. He's seeing those who have for their lives gathered together on the Lord's day, which is actually when the revelation comes to him on Sunday morning. 
He's seeing people gathered from every nation who bear witness to the Lamb. In Prairie Town and in Pittsburgh and St. Louis, Stockholm, Shanghai, Caesarea Philippi, in London and Laodicea, in Addis Ababa, Athens, Alexandria, Anchorage, you name it. That's who's gathered around the throne. In other words, what John is seeing is the worship life of the church from the perspective of heaven. This is what church looks like from heaven's view. It may not seem all that impressive to modern folks anymore, but this is what God sees when he sees Sunday morning in his church. People gathered around the throne of God. Every worshiper who's ever lived, is living, or will live. God sees all of them at once because he is eternal. He is eternity itself. And that is what John the Revelator was privileged to behold. Salvation is with our God and with the Lamb. Hallelujah. So the, the next time somebody tries to tell you that Revelation is a scary book, remind them of this scene. The Revelation, the revealing, as its title means, is a book of comfort. A book of comfort written by the beloved disciple of Jesus who, that is meant to comfort us in all the midst of life's suffering and great sorrows. It's kind of ironic in a way that it shows up on Mother's Day in our lectionary this year. There is so much sorrow to be addressed with the revelation. John receives a clarification from one of the elders here about exactly who these people are. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And the word for tribulation relates directly to the making of wine or of olive oil. It's when something is squished. That's what life is in some ways, right? A great pressing in upon us from all sides at times. But the results are beautiful and enjoyable. The root verb means to crush. These are the ones who are coming out of the great smashing. Those who have been afflicted, persecuted, pressed in on all sides for the sake of the name of Jesus. And although our persecution and tribulation often seems a little more subtle in this day and age, don't forget that it's there. It's just a little sneakier than it once was. That's who these people are. They're the ones who at present will suffer in various ways for the sake of Jesus and it will ultimately be gathered around the throne. And this is where the message of Easter intersects with our vision this morning. It is where all of Jesus' work will come to fruition. It may have started with a shameful execution and lead to a miraculously empty tomb, but here is the true result. Who are these that John sees? In other words, who are the you that John sees? You, then. You are the ones whose robes have been washed white. They have been made white in the blood of the Lamb, which seems counterintuitive if you've ever tried to get a blood stain out of a white shirt before. I'm not talking about your physical clothes. Well, Joe and I are usually the ones wearing white robes here at church, apart from the occasional acolyte, but the robes here, in most cases in the New Testament, refer to someone's righteousness. 
They're standing before God. You have been clothed with the robe of Christ's own righteousness. Sparkling, bright white, because your robes have been made white by the blood of the Lamb. For many of you, it happened right over there in that very font. In essence, what John sees is every single Christian who's ever lived all dressed up in the brightness that he saw Jesus wearing at the Transfiguration. These white robes here envision each and every Christian standing before the throne of God with no sin, with no spot or wrinkle or blemish, but clothed with the perfection that is Jesus Christ himself. The elder continues explaining this to John with a purpose clause to get all grammatical on you. He says, therefore, because of this, they are in the sight of God and before the throne and worship him day and night in his temple. Therefore, because of this, this one who is seated on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Nothing evil, nothing bad, nothing even slightly wrong will befall any of those gathered around the throne because of the presence of God. It shelters us and it covers us. Much like what Paul says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in the shelter, we do what we're made to do. We bow in reverence and awe and worship and praise and thanksgiving before the one who made us and who has now redeemed us and recreated us. No longer will we hunger or thirst have the sun fall upon us or any scorching heat, which sounded really, really good when I lived in Arizona for all those years. It also sounds good when it's supposed to be 95 degrees this Wednesday. But in the new creation, in the shelter of God's presence, the sun will not strike you nor any scorching heat, because the Lamb in the midst of the throne will shepherd us. He will be our shepherd. He is our shepherd. And he leads us to streams of living water. And if it sounds a lot like Psalm 23, it should. Because David, ancestor of Jesus, yet also follower of Jesus in the promise, saw glimpses of this coming all along. And he spoke about them in the psalm. And I think it's why it resonates with us so deeply. And the last part that we're hearing from John's vision this morning. The last part gets me every single time. Every time I teach this passage or talk about it or preach about it, there's another batch of tears from a whole bunch more faces that need wiping away. We have lost so many loved ones, or so it seems, especially on Mother's Day when many of us miss so many mothers or grandmothers who've gone on. There's so many tears on so many faces that need wiping because there's never any shortage of hurts or pains or tears in this valley of the shadow of death. But when, and not if, but when, we are gathered there before the throne of God, sheltered in His presence under the direct pastoral care of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself, God will wipe every tear from all our eyes. Amen. And the Lord who has begun this good work in you, bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.